0: The Reality Escape Pod is made possible by Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need to get away from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guests are Anne and Chris Lukman from CU Adventures in Time and Space in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks Thanks so much
1: for having us. You guys are our first escape room
2: designers and owners that we have actually had on this podcast.
1: Yeah, no pressure. No no pressure. Yeah, no pressure.
0: You're going to be fine. We'll be gentle. (laughs) You have a deep love of the House on the Rock and promised that this conversation would degrade into a discussion of its wondrous virtues. So we're just going straight there. Can you explain the glory of this Wisconsin attraction and how it has influenced you?
1: I'm so, so excited you asked, because as you said, we would have gotten there anyway. We first decided we were going to do a thing called Champagne Urbana Adventures in Time and Space on a trip to Wisconsin when we visited both House on the Rock and Wizard Quest in like the same weekend just kind of opened our eyes to a level of weird that could be a commercial business. This was even before escape rooms were really a thing.
3: Yeah I think it was around 2013. 2012. And we came back from this awesome trip thinking about how Well, you know, something like this attraction could work outside of a tourist zone.
1: Yeah. So to step back, Wizard Quest, it's a very early kind of escape room attraction where it's kind of a scavenger hunt done in a very large, really cool fantasy designed space, uh, 12,000 square feet at the time. I think they just moved of fire, air, water, and earth realms. And you have to go find and solve riddles kind of all over. Uh, Everybody's doing it at once. So it's kind of like a playground. But the thing that really was amazing to us is that we thought the game was going to be for kids. It was fun for kids, but it was designed with adults in mind at an adult difficulty. Yeah,
3: it was like a themed McDonald's play place level, except with unicorns and secret passages, elves, and, trees, and ball
1: pits, and a giant
3: troll that would fart on you.
1: Is it still open? I think they took over an old hotel, so it's huge yeah, now. Yeah, yeah,
3: they were making it big. The core gameplay mechanic revolved around completing a series of. Quizzes that were based on a computer system. It was like scavenger hunt riddles. Crystals you earned by answering quizzes correctly. The quiz answers would be set up based on like dioramas that were around or like how many allies did the centaur of the forbidden glade have in his fight against the dark elves. So you'd have to find the centaur. You'd have to try and decide how many people were on his side, and how, and just by exploring the space or looking through like little holes in trees where people where they'd set up miniature dioramas and stuff like that. And then you'd earn crystals, and if you earned enough crystals, you could free a wizard,
1: which you also had to find. The yeah. wizards were hidden and there secret. were four
3: wizards hidden, and by that we mean they were video screens, responsive video screens. So when you had enough crystals, you found one of the wizards ri- and you wizards scanned of the your little barcode. You scanned the barcode at him, and then he'd be like, thank you for freed me. Only two wizards remain. And you had two hours to do this. Yeah, it's
1: amazing. It's been open for probably 20 or 30 years. I've never
0: heard of this
3: before. They've
1: upgraded. We haven't been there recently, but they've upgraded so it's all on tablets now, and there are more quests. But everyone's doing it at once, so you can have 100 people in there, and everyone's just like running around. of yeah so you'd have to
3: navigate people who if it was a rainy day just needed to do something with their kids inside
1: look i'm not saying you're gonna push kids out of your way frantically trying to free the wizards but i did
3: (laughs) it's a tough game if you're trying to win it's a fun two hours if you're just trying to like kill some time is it
2: timed you only you're allowed two hours or that's just how long it takes to do the whole thing
3: it cuts you off whether you can input quiz answers yeah there a bunch of comp- so that
1: was the, the end of it you could still hang out there though because it's super
2: cool
3: it, it was so surreal It was a 12 dollar ticket it had a giant dragon outside and like it looked like pure tourist trap cheese
2: i will pull over for that
3: and yeah we ended the two hours running to the final kiosk to get our stuff scanned and yeah. we went to the gift shop afterwards you get a discount if you free all the wizards and i think we went your to the discount is start- proportional yeah, to, how to how many, many wizards, wizards you
1: free it was transcended And this was before escape rooms? This was before we had done any escape rooms, yeah. So to get back to House on the Rock, the other thing we did on that trip, so that was kind of like the puzzle interactive, customer-facing inspiration inspiration for it. House on the Rock, it is in the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin. It's very close to, there's a Frank Lloyd Wright house across the street from it. There's some rumor that this guy who built this house was doing it in response to Frank Lloyd Wright. But this guy, who was not an architect, found this rock. That overlooks
3: very picturesque, beautiful, like valley of Wisconsin, kind of rolling hills.
1: And he built a house on top of it. And this is like in the 50s, 60s, very mid century. It's like a skyscraper hobbit hole of kitsch. And everything's covered in shag carpet. And there's all these little, like, you know, the 70s, like, den kind of seated lower seating areas, stuff like that.
3: It's like he turned a cave into the most stereotypical 70s, like, swag pad. Imaginable.
1: So he also was a collector of stuff. He was kind of hosted an arts commune kind of thing. So in addition to the house, there's several warehouses that are full of fully designed, weird set collections of things. There's all of these fake orchestras that are all set up. And so it's like- Animatronic. Yeah. This, well, yeah. I, mm, there, it's <gasps> all of these instruments, there's no fake people playing them. The instruments play themselves and you put a token in and the instruments all like- And
3: you see this huge room, like the house, the rooms are small. In the warehouse section, it's these expansive cavernous spaces where he has basically done a, an old school patron system of paying artists to do weird stuff in the 70s and in the 80s. Yeah,
1: but it's all done under the specter of, oh, look at these antiques I've collected. It's a weird, very Midwestern, like, look at all my stuff.
3: It's like a museum with just not a great handle on uh, what's real, Mm -hmm. what's fake. Reality. Reality, (laughs) exactly,
1: exactly. So some people who visit House on the Rock because it's a sideshow attraction just go through and they're like, oh, that's some weird stuff. For me, my experience that I love about it is you walk through the house and you're like, all right. This is a weird house. Uh, it's got the infinity room, which you may have seen pictures of. It's the infinity uh, illusion where it looks like it goes off into nothingness, but it's a room of that. So you are walking off like over the valley and it looks like there's nothing underneath you. So that's a pretty famous image from it. And that's kind of like, I think, a good image to represent the house is that like it's it's an illusion, right? Like it's very cool, weird illusion. So you're walking through the house, you you see all these like collection of weird trick guns and swords and... And it feels kind of like a real museum at some parts. There's like, the streets of yesteryear, which there's... is like set up like a turn of the century, like little st- street front. With an ice cream store in it and everything this, like that. Yeah, This
2: stuff reminds... He's like the original hipster of selfie pop-up media. Yeah, exactly. Like, they have all those now that are just
1: photo ops, <laughs> but yeah. this is the real deal. So you get through a lot of the stuff, and after a while, it starts to feel kind of like, all right, this is a, just a boring museum. And then there's the crown jewels, and you're like, the crown jewels are not in Wisconsin. <laughs> and then that's the moment that if you haven't realized it yet, you realize that like there's no sense of reality yeah. here.
3: And there's nothing- a whale
1: that's the size of a football field that's fighting like this weird squid monster. That was just a weird art project he did. The Psycho-like. climax of uh, the collection. experience is this, it's called the Organ Room. He took like church organs and barrels and other just random Americana stuff.
3: Pieces of a cruise liner.
1: And turned it into basically a three-dimensional Escher painting. So it's like stairs going nowhere. So it kind of breaks down the whole thing into just like absolute nonsense of collection as sculpture, in my it's, opinion. It's
3: breathtaking. It's breathtaking. And, and you know, we talk about it as art. I would say at least half the people that walk through that would not think they just experienced art.
1: Yeah. They're just like, oh, that was a weird collection of stuff.
2: I love anything that thrusts me into an artist fantasy. Even the freeway on-ramp by my house, there's this guy who's got this collection of stuff. Every day, it is configured differently. I mean, and it is a massive collection of most people would call it junk, and I am obsessed with this thing. I wave at him every time. He dances, he's got on different hats. All of this stuff, anytime people have like these crazy visions that are able to somehow project it and thrust other people into it, I (laughs) I am all in on this.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we... After we went there for the first time, we were just like, it gave us a kind of a different idea of how we could make art and how we could tell stories. And that combined with the puzzling interaction we had at Wizard Quest really made for a mind blowing drive back.
3: Yeah. And where we were approaching all this from is for the past 15 years, since mid-college, Ann and I have been making independent films, weird horror, sci-fi, comedy Like right when web video started being a thing, we'd been doing weird comedy short films. We've done film festivals and conventions and stuff like that. And it's always been about providing that weird experience to people. We'd never really thought about it in a more physical space. Everything we had done with our filmmaking had been spectacle to one degree or another.
2: Is that when you guys met in college?
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we met in college. I uh, directed and wrote a really goofy 90-minute horror film, "The University of Illinois Versus a Mummy,"
1: where we met. That's how we met. I was very interested in this film and wanted to be a part of it.
0: Classic love story.
3: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. It was total meet cute. <laughs> We both have signed copies of Bruce Campbell's autobiography. His first one. His first one. And that's where we both got our recipe for using fake blood before we met.
3: It turns out we were at the same book signing. (laughs) We were at the same book signing in Springfield, Illinois. That's
1: awesome. I love that.
0: That is so adorable.
3: So we've been doing all this spectacle-based filmmaking, and indie film is tough. It is so tough. You have to... Nobody
1: wants to watch your movie for free.
3: Yeah. You basically have to pay thousands of dollars to get your film in a film festival that may just be an empty theater with the organizers of the festival watching. It's, it's a brutal, brutal um, place to get any traction in. And after doing that for for so long, we saw this this neat opportunity to bring our spectacle to people, and we're just floored by the idea that not only were they enjoying it, were we selling out, but people would actually pay us for it in a sustainable way.
1: Yeah, that was that was the absolute mind-blowing thing. There's, I mean, you can't make money doing, you know, independent film, but people will pay for escape rooms.
2: So you guys turned all of that love and passion for making horror and indie films into creating your escape rooms. That's awesome.
0: Over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of different escape room creators. And what I keep finding among many of my favorites, really all of them, is that the influences and work that they were doing before ends up feeding into the unique style that they have when it comes to producing actual games. What I'm wondering is, based off of your background as video producers, and aside from creating some of the most pristine video that we had at Recon 2020, how has your background in video production influenced your game designs?
1: Chris has a really, really strong passion for production design, and that has been something that he's always done with our films. And that is something that he brings to the escape room. He's building the same kind of stuff. It's just building it beefier and stronger. Talking about like set
2: design, right?
1: I've
3: always really, really looked at the physical props, the set, the production design as storytelling. I've always been big on making sure that even if the scene is a dry dialogue that will be shot in close-ups, that the framing looks good, that helps further part of the story. Taking that further to a physical space has just been amazing. Thinking about it where if a player stands in the doorway, here's kind of how they're interpreting the scene. If a player decides to go back in this corner and look at the scene from there, what are they seeing? If I can stand anywhere in the room, it should feel like a picturesque, lived in space and either tell part of the story inform part of the puzzles or be weird or be funny. (laughs) It has to do one of those things. And exploring our spaces as we're in production of rooms, that's just kind of the process. Whenever we hit a lull or at the end of a long night or when we're in between resets for other games, I'll just pace around in the rooms in construction and just be like, what does this need? Is this something? and every single piece of the process should be something, either artistically interesting, puzzle-oriented, or a neat experience that maybe one in 20 people will look back on and smile about.
2: These are the little things that as players, you don't realize, but as a designer, that's how you help something run smoothly. When the player is standing here, how do you direct their attention somewhere? Or what is either something obvious or something hidden, and how can you manipulate that in order to create better game flow and puzzle design?
1: Yeah, I would say that the other thing that we really have taken from narrative film is the three-act structure. We typically build all of our rooms. You know, we we think of them conceptually as act one, act two, act three. Usually that corresponds to three different spaces or opening a different space that recontextualizes the first space you're in if there's not a third room. We've mapped out how we tell the story, how we have that narrative arc in how you're interacting with the room.
3: Yeah, the ebb and flow of the player experience is something we, we try and keep a real, real tight lid on, to keep a tight eye on as we're developing these games. It's all percentages. We want most people to experience interaction X or see things in a certain order. And not everyone's going to. Someone's going to walk in and just pick a suspicious looking brick in the generic brick paneling and point at it and be like, "Does that look like a face to you? I think that's a face. What does this mean?" <laughs> and it's it's not the normal experience or people might find stuff out of the standard order and that shouldn't ruin the game. The goal is to have Most teams experience most of the story in a very conscious level, and if they don't do that, it won't ruin their experience, but if they do do that, it's probably going to make them enjoy it more.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's basically a bell curve. People between 20 and 80th percentile or whatever are going to experience the game mostly in the way we think they will. And then the outliers are just like either not looking at anything or immediately solving it because they're amazing at escape rooms.
3: Yeah. And the the other part of that that I think we do do really well is taking into account the players that have never played before. The, the grandparent bringing their grandkids to just fill an afternoon and people that have played a thousand escape rooms should still feel something, if not challenging, then interesting in the game.
2: Yeah. Do you accomplish that by trying to accommodate both types of players within one room? Or do you think that it's better to be like, well, this room will recommend for beginners, this room we really created to cater to experienced puzzlers?
1: Every room that we design should be able to be played by newbies and enthusiasts. Uh, We don't do difficulty levels on our rooms. We try to modulate it based on hints, based on GM interaction. We try to prepare people really well. And then there are a few things where we have kind of easy and hard mode where we can toggle it one way or the other, or we can sneak a puzzle in or out, uh, depending on how things are doing.
3: But even those aren't necessarily based on experience level. Like if a pretty good team wants to say like, hey we don't want hints. For real. Don't give us hints. It'll make our experience worse. We'll take hands off. And then there's a good chance that that team will get the easier mode. What I consider to be our easiest game uh, at CU Adventures, Wizard's Curse, is the one that got nominated for the
1: Turpicus. It's also
2: our smallest game. Difficulty level doesn't necessarily correspond with how fun or how good a room is.
1: We try to make it so that every group will at least make it to the final puzzle and have some kind of narrative conclusion. If they win at the final puzzle or if they don't win at the final puzzle, okay, they got there. And then for experienced groups, we want to make sure that we provide them with about 45 minutes of content.
3: Yeah. I think even when people have sequence breaked, no one has ever gotten out of one of our rooms faster than around 35 minutes. And that's, that's great.
2: Yeah.
0: That's really respectable.
2: I love that. Get your money's worth. I don't know why people are like, I finished that room in 20 minutes and I'm like, you're a sucker and you did not get your money's worth.
1: <laughs> yeah, before the pandemic, we traveled around a lot and we would play a lot of games and it was, you know, just the two of us and it was, you know. For... I'm sure
3: you've experienced Yeah, this. Y-
1: Y'all know, um, you know, when oh, it's two yeah. people, uh, you should not finish a game in 20 minutes. Like, that's that's not fun.
0: We've had those experiences. <laughs> when you first do that, like the first couple of times that you do that, it is exhilarating. You just feel like a puzzle god.
2: I was confused. I thought we made a mistake, because I was like, wait, we're in the hallway. (laughs) Should there be another room at this point?
0: Some of that also, I think, might just be the way that they end. If the game doesn't have an ending that feels like an ending, then you just are like, wait, it's over?
2: Yes, that was also, it it just wasn't very climactic. It felt like we should have been in another room at that point, not an ending.
0: (laughs) Which really gets to your point about story structure if the story structure is there then you won't have that problem even if you get out faster than probably should have
1: some of our players still get confused when the game ends (laughs) i mean
0: yeah we
3: we don't have an exit door for any of our games too So so
1: it's typically it is a voice like a character in the game saying you did it you've saved the world angelic choir behind them and then people are like did we win We're like, well, we just told you, you saved the world. What more do you want, dude?
3: (laughs) Yeah, that was something interesting acclimating uh, the narrative was telling Game Masters like, no, you should just come in and tell them they won. I know the game just told them they won, but it it doesn't hurt and it makes them feel feel good.
2: What was the reasoning behind the decision to have the game end in the room with the voice? Typically, a lot of games, they end because you've, whatever, opened the door and you've escaped. You're out in the hallway. You're back in the real world.
1: Yeah, Yeah, none of our games use escaping as a mechanic we are not really interested in locking people in and, and telling that kind of story. The stories that we are more interested in are finding a MacGuffin, doing a magic spell. Uh, one, of, The Wizards 1 ends with a duel with a wizard.
3: Yeah, even in 2015, know, six just years a story ago, we, wanted to we tell. called our company CU Adventures in Time and Space. One of our things from the outset was we're not putting escape in the title. Yes, that is probably where the industry's going to absolutely solidify as this is what the experience is called but our games are not about escaping a room. And we can fudge it a little bit and be like, if people give us guff about it, we're like, oh no, you're escaping reality. It's escapism. Yeah, it's an escapism event. But like, it's always just been about adventure, interactive storytelling. We still feel that puzzles are a great way to gateway that experience.
1: And even when we started in 2015, we absolutely did not want to put locks on the doors. That just seemed like a terrible idea. We encourage people if they have a phone call or need to text somebody or if they have to go to the bathroom, just like step out of the room. That's fine. I I don't want anybody having an emergency in our rooms
3: we've heard enough horror stories from people who are like in new orleans or andrew preble's got some stories yeah, yeah he does we get enough 21st birthday parties and stuff like that or at least when we were uh, when we were rocking and rolling that we don't want to lock people in if they need to get out they can get out
0: I haven't had a chance to play your games pg hasn't had a chance to play your games but we know a lot of folks who have you're in a really small market doing really mighty things. What are some of the pros and cons that come with serving a smaller community?
1: Rent. It is so cheap to live here.
3: We're a small market. We're not a tiny market.
1: Right. Yeah. People People sometimes say that it's a small town, but I mean, it's a Two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand 300,000 person metro area. That's not nothing. And
3: on top of that, we have a rotating 30,000 person student audience at the University of Illinois.
1: Are you guys close by Chicago? We're, we're on
3: the way to a lot of places. Yes,
1: we're two and a half hours south of Chicago. We're two hours west of Indianapolis and we're two and a half hours northeast of St. Louis. So we're very close to a lot of larger markets.
3: As long as we can support our true fans locally, we subscribe to like the true fan theory of filmmaking, where if you can get a 1000 people that will support you no matter what you do, if you have those true fans that will provide you with the insurance with the base to go off and do bigger and better and more
0: interesting risk taking things
2: it's
1: like Rhea.
0: Yeah, we might subscribe to the same concept,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing something really, really well for a very small group of people, they will love you for it. As long as you
0: don't betray
3: that. Yeah. As long as you
1: don't betray that, then, you know, you'll be okay. The university has allowed for several businesses to grow up around here that are just like U of I bucket list places. And that was always kind of our model there's an apple orchard that every student goes to. You know, it's an apple orchard, pumpkin patch with like goats and chickens and all kinds of stuff. And we wanted to be like that. Every single student goes to that place at least once. At least in once their during their career. four years here. We just wanted to do that. Like, if we can get every student to come try us once,
3: yeah, that's a sustainable business model for the cost of living around here. We started super risk adverse. Like, I so small. I think we not- subleased
1: for eight hundred dollars a month. It was a very inexpensive way to do it. And then we were slowly able to build out from that because some of the other businesses that were in there left. And so we're like, okay, well, we'll take over this property. Eventually, we managed the whole property and we had another building around the corner. We were like, this is ridiculous. So we were able to do that over the course of two, three years. And then we kind of got into our now, I think, permanent location, which currently is 11,000 square feet but it's in a 90,000 square foot warehouse that we could expand into if we wanted to so i think i think that's going to be enough space hadn't hit. For, yeah well
3: I mean, before 2020, we were always building new rooms. We're a one-location escape room company, and we built the equivalent of 12 permanent rooms and maybe a dozen traveling ones.
2: What's a traveling room?
3: We ran large-scale, ridiculously complicated escape rooms at Gen Con Indianapolis, the largest board game convention in the country. So we would fill multiple U-Hauls up to the brim with set design, props, walls. Theater flats. Uh, Every year we did something different, but we ran multi-room, full four-walled escape room adventures in a ballroom in uh, downtown
1: Indianapolis for three days. The last year we did it, we arrived at 9 in the morning on Wednesday. We set up until... 2 in the morning. We had a crew of 20 people unload everything, take it upstairs to the ballroom, set it up in the ballroom, and then we ran games... Thursday, Friday, Saturday from 10 a.m. to midnight, Sunday from 10 a.m. to 1. And then we tore it all down Sunday and brought it home Sunday night.
3: And they would sell out months in advance. We ran um,
1: uh, over 1,100 people through
3: in three days. In three days, days three and a half game. days
1: through a single yeah, game. That's crazy. How did you guys get involved with that? We had been doing the Gen Con Film Festival for a really long time with our weird stuff. So we had been, go- we've gone to Gen Con every year since 2009. So we just emailed, Derek (laughs) is the events guy
3: guy, and we'd known that they'd had an escape room once before but it was something along the lines of it's a series of locked crates lock boxes it's just lock boxes on the ground so we did a huge ridiculous spectacle five years in a row that's how we got tied into so many people in the escape room community Mm -hmm. uh that came to this that's how we met Elon that's That's how how we met Amanda and Drew yeah Amanda and Drew I think they all played together
0: Amanda Harris and Drew Nelson, the most experienced American escape room players. They're awesome.
2: I had played the game that you guys did for, was it an arts festival, like just recently?
0: Oh,
3: yeah. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you did Exit Stage Left.
3: We pick up a few small contracts producing an event that's only going to happen for a weekend. And maybe we'll keep some parts of it for later and some parts of it for now.
2: It was so much fun. Oh, I'm so glad. It was a free half hour game. And... For half an hour, I was amazed at how much content there was, how tightly woven it was. Also, it was really packed and it was done really well. And there were some really innovative techniques that I hadn't seen before that like now that I know about your background in video producing, I'm like, that makes perfect sense.
0: Recon, the reality escape convention, our convention for immersive gaming is going to be entirely digital again in 2021. It will be hosted online on August 22nd and 23rd. You can find all of the videos from last year's convention on the Room Escape artist YouTube channel, and you can find out more about this year's event at realityescapecon.com where you can sign up for our newsletter to learn more as we start to release the information about all of our speakers and vendors and sponsors. We have so many wonderful things already lined up, and I cannot wait to inform you of all of it. Over the last year, you've gone digital, producing Floor 13 and The Lost Temple. Those have clear roots in LucasArts and Sierra-style adventure games from the 90s. What are some of your favorite games from that era, and what are the elements that you try to capture when you're making these games?
1: Every single game we make, I want to feel like Monkey Island. I want it to have that weird sense of comedy, adventure, joy that that game brought to me as a kid.
3: Maybe a little more fair than Monkey Island is (laughs) if you uh, aren't using the manual or cheat sheets.
1: Control W, baby!
3: Yeah. From that era, I was big in the, the old school Fallout games maybe around then okay this is gonna be super niche multi-user dungeons which were online games they're called muds they're online games that were a hundred percent text-based because that's what your 28.8k modem could do online reliably
0: did you both have a chance to play the original cryptex hunt that errol had made in a mud no uh-uh. it was insane errol is insane that is Errol from The Room Escape Divas, and the, the Cryptex Hunt is coming up again. Actually, by the time mm-hmm. this airs, it will have been in the past.
1: Like every other escape room owner, I'm a huge Zelda fan. Ocarina of Time is my happy place.
3: It felt almost cheap how much it elevated the medium of escape rooms to make that jump to RFID tech from just lock and lock boxes. Those first experiences, if you had good experience with them at first, where you Put the thing on. You put the, the thing, three
1: spiritual stones it- on the temple, and it makes a thing happen. Like, I mean, it's just real life Zelda. That's just all I've ever wanted in my whole life. It's
3: almost a blind spot how much of a happy feeling that that gives us still
1: it's magical. It's absolutely (laughs) magical. This
0: is part of the reason why Lisa and I try to play with newer players as regularly as we can. We like to be able to experience those kinds of things through the eyes of first timers on a regular basis to keep us from becoming totally jaded.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Curious about like Lost Temple. How
2: come, is that why you guys decided to go in the direction with it that you did as kind of like a print and play digital game as opposed to going with an avatar like a lot of other companies have?
3: I mean, the story of Lost Temple is just the story of the first month of the American pandemic. We're, we're seeing the writing on the wall in early March. Illinois was one of the states that did a hard stop. It was a stay at home order. If you are non-essential, you are in your house. And at the same time, we qualified for very, very early, too early for the first round of the payroll protection program. So we had money from the government to pay people, but people literally could not leave their homes. Our people were looking for something to do to just like get their mind off of everything. We uh, We weren't pushing real hard, but if people were looking for work, we had this concept that we were thinking about doing. We had just retired Lost Temple finally after three different versions of the game over five years. We had a huge batch of puzzles. We had used it at Gen Con Indianapolis Anne had run it as a tabletop role-playing game before we opened to test some of the puzzles. For Call of Cthulhu, she ran it around a table at this gaming convention. It was super fun. Before we ever built any of our rooms. We had repuzzled it a few times based on when we moved, and based on we had decided what kind of escape rooms we wanted to make a little bit more. So Mm -hmm. we totally redid the puzzles. We had tons of lore that we had ended up taking out of the game because people don't like to read, especially if it's not moving them forward in the clues. So we had this huge bank of both physical artifacts that were just sitting in storage
1: twice as many puzzles as you'd need for a full escape room and then some probably because of and all the like different iterations we had pages
3: of lore and like abandoned puzzles that we had didn't really fit any of the puzzle flow and all sorts of stuff so it just felt like the perfect thing to turn into a digital game we have several voice actors on our game mastering staff they were super excited to lay down the voice track
1: Many of them had recording stuff at home. One of our game masters, she works in radio too. She was super excited to do the sound design and and some sound mixing for us, which is great because I hate sound mixing. I knew she was good at it, but I didn't know she was this good. She absolutely wowed us in every single aspect of it between all those things it was just a thing that we could all put some time into it was at a home while we all needed something to take our mind off the pandemic
2: It was very unique the way you guys structured it because there are photos of the physical room but then there's an online component too so you go on the website and you kind of play through that and on top of that you also had things that you printed out and put together so you actually kind of had little physical puzzles to play with so I-, I thought it was a really unique really fun game
1: The goal was to make it feel as much like an escape room as possible that you could do at your own home, which is why we wanted the gating with the website, the photos. We wanted to have those printed aspects so you would have things that you would manipulate and actually have that tactile experience.
0: It really nailed that. And for me, it was the first game I had played in quarantine that really gave me a taste of the joy that I loved about playing real life rooms. It was a really powerful thing for me. And, I, and it was definitely at a point where I was not thrilled to sit down and play the games that were coming in at the time, to be totally honest. And that was the first time where I sat down and something made me feel connected again. It honestly helped me.
1: That makes me so, so happy. Yeah. And that's still available
2: to play under your website too. So any listeners at home, if you cannot make it out to Illinois to play their awesome games, you should at least check that out.
0: Which brings us to the next project that kind of seems like it came out of this, which is Solve Our Shirts, your new t-shirt based game. I'm a big fan.
2: Oh my God, I'm obsessed. I just played it yesterday. I just got to tell you guys, David insisted that I not book you until I made sure I had the Solver shirts in my hands and had played it. He refused to book you guys until like, he was like, 100% you've played it first. And now I understand why.
0: I think I was obnoxiously obstinate about this.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that project in particular is just a good way to understand who we are and like what we do.
2: Let's explain what it is for any listeners who don't know what Solve Our Shirts is.
3: Solve Our Shirts, Escape from the Maze of the Minotaur, is our take-home project that's not purely digital. It has a small online component, but it is meant to be a play-at-home escape room that is its own thing. It's not close to the experience, we think, of any of the others that are out there.
0: It's its own unique beast.
1: (laughs) It's a 60- to 90-minute game, or possibly longer. It's on a shirt the primary focus of the puzzles and the puzzle solving and the storytelling is on the t-shirt. I mean,
3: we've said it before. We are a sucker for spectacle. So when we wanted to do a take-home thing, the idea that we could base it around some sort of gimmick and then nail that gimmick was something that really appealed to us. We wanted to make sure it was a puzzle doing things that we had not seen before.
0: Being a event-based company that turned into a digital distribution company what was it like to have to figure out how to disseminate physical products
1: yeah it was fun <laughs> luckily we're small enough you know when we did our our shirt order we did a thousand shirt runs so that's not too bad we have an amazing staff who came in to help us with some of the warehouse stuff.
3: Yeah, Illinois went into lockdown again uh, from November to mid-January. So our staff was in the same place we were back in March, but with fewer physical stay-at-home restrictions. It actually felt kind of like the Christmas spirit in a mercenary, capitalistic way to have everybody in and our yeah, own little Santa's we workshop. Had a, we had a Santa's like...
1: workshop going on. We had Christmas music. Sewing
0: and cutting and stamping.
3: and Yeah
1: and packing envelopes we did everything in-house
0: at the end and it's funny because i i didn't experience any of it while i was playing afterwards i opened up the little pamphlet you included to kick it into easy mode and i thought that that was just one of the most artfully done approaches to hinting that i've ever seen
2: I wonder if we could have you guys come back for a spoiler version for the Patreon. One of the patron benefits that I had thought we should do, we wanted to have kind of a game of the month. So every month we will recommend something to the patrons. You know, we will all play this. And then David and I, we're going to get on and talk about it, including spoilers, right? Walking through it and this way, it's kind of like, we know we've all played this game together. So now we can talk about it in depth.
1: Yeah, we'd be be happy happy to to do that. I love that so much. One of the things that has been uh, really challenging uh, about the pandemic is even after you play an avatar game or after you play a a game, you want to have that post escape room, like, let's talk about what happened, like, and we were all there. So there's no spoilers. Let's just talk about it. And you haven't been able to have that as much. And so I love I love the idea of this. Like, let's all talk about the game we just played. um, But like even bigger
0: could just do what I did and browbeat my co-host into <laughs> playing the game before we have a guest on.
1: That works too.
0: <laughs> the thing that really stood out to me when I opened up that hint system, I always go back, if I don't use a hint system while I'm playing, I always go and I take a look at it as a reviewer and I kind of put myself into the mind of someone who needs it. How is this serving them? How is this making the game more playable? How is it handling that situation? And most of the time I read through them and It's not a fun thing, it's a thing I do because I've made it my job. With the hint system in this, I actually, there was a point where I was like, I don't know, maybe I played it wrong by not using this because I'm experiencing this now out of the game and that's, it's really funny. I almost wish I had played with it.
2: I played with it (laughs) because I just can't help myself.
1: (laughs) It was a very last minute addition, as we always do. We were like, oh no, we made this game too hard. It's going to be too long. With some of the other games we do, we modulate with hints. And so we were able to do that with Temple and Floor 13. But with this, we were worried that people wouldn't be doing as much hinting in the online interface.
3: Especially as a Christmas present, there's a different sort of audience. And we wanted to make sure that this was a cleaner experience for the people that were very much not puzzlers, had never played a puzzle hunt in their life, had enjoyed escape rooms probably probably
1: yeah it was such a late addition that we didn't have time to send it out to the printer so we literally just went and bought trifold paper and we print them on our own printer in our house it looks good yeah thank you that's nice paper you can buy that paper at staples
3: (laughs) free free advertisement for staples here
1: i really think hinting and cluing
2: is an art form
1: yeah and one of the things we always do in our real games is we don't use monitors or anything like that we don't do text hints we have a live gm who is playing a character Talk over a microphone or through a through a haunted doll or through an animatronic raven or through a shadowy figure, something like that. So you are getting a hint from a real person who can actually ascertain what you need help on and try and get you there. Not give you the answer, but maybe ask a question that will point you in the right direction. That was the toughest
3: difficulty curve to making our digital games not being present like even for the play tests really not being present for the the trials and tribulations the frustrations the misunderstandings. So designing the hint systems for these games, we wanted to give as much flexibility as possible. They have a tried and true, hey, do you need a hint on this puzzle option on the website for every puzzle? But we also wanted to kind of smooth that difficulty curve.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a midpoint between signposting and hinting for that pamphlet, because there were some puzzles that I thought just could use a little bit extra signposting. Once we had the shirt printed, there's not much we can change about the <laughs> shirt. <so>.
3: Yeah, <laughs> it was challenging to base beta test this without the physical garment, and we couldn't really have the physical garment until we had all 1,000 of them.
1: It was a different kind of challenge, because with escape room beta testing, it's like, okay, well, this didn't work. Let's change it. But this, we we really had something baked in that if something didn't totally work in playtesting, we just had to work around it and find a different solution.
3: And the perception of the shirt is that it is a light game. Like, you, you look at it, it looks jovial, it looks light, You're like, oh, maybe this is like half an hour of puzzles and then I get a shirt sort of thing. But it can be a challenging game. So we wanted to make sure that the expectation more closely met what the actual product was, like what the experience was. And that's, that's one way that we really like doing the pamphlet um, and trying to make sure people's egos weren't too bruised to open the pamphlet. But also, if they're intense puzzlers, we didn't want to make it feel like a... You're dumb if you need this. Here's your run book. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's we just wanted, to we wanted to make it not feel do. like
1: a run book. That was one of the things that we argued about a lot. I was like very worried it was just going to be a run book, and I didn't like that. But then Chris wrote it, and I was like, "Well, this is hilarious. I love it."
0: Well, this has been a ton of fun, and we're going to be continuing this fun in the bonus episode for our Patreon supporters. Chris and Anne are going to be joining us, and we're just going to keep on talking. Also. This week, we're going to be drawing names for the contest winners. We have a whole ton of games that we're giving away from CU Adventures, The Wild Optimists, Exploding Kittens, and Perplexer's Puzzles. So thank you to all of them for providing those games. And you can check our Instagram for the announcement of the winners. If you are interested in buying some Survivor Replica puzzles from Perplexer's Puzzles, please do use promo code REPOD. It'll give you a discount. It'll give us a little bit of money. And lastly, you can find all of the show notes on roomescapeartist.com. We have pictures of a whole bunch of the things that Chris and Anne were talking about, especially some of that stuff from House on the Rock, which sounds wild. It looks wild. You should check out those pictures. And please do rate and review us. It really does help us out. Thanks. In your recon panel, and you alluded to it earlier today, you mentioned expansion plans that may or may not be happening at some point. Can I coax any of that out of you? Is this something you're willing to talk about? Oh, we're oh super we'll are talk ex- about it. We're super excited to talk about it.
1: Because it was no going to be great. We longer have the money. So we were going to do a mini golf board game bar. So an indoor mini golf course, really intensely designed, adventure themed kind of D&D style dragons and and weird stuff and all kinds of craziness to really fulfill the promise of the premise of mini golf you know like cartoon mini golf right rube
3: goldbergian machinations we had some interesting plans on how to add an additional layer of gamification on top of playing mini golf in a few different ways all around this amazing fantasy bar that had no reason to exist outside of a five million person
1: city we had a a plan and a place that concept art you go to Play this crazy weird artistic mini golf and then you have a fancy cocktail it's not a bar it's a mini golf place that has a bar we were going to add board game as- aspects to it and private rooms for playing D&D and maybe um, you know we paid had a GMs space
3: assigned for weird experimental this isn't an escape room this isn't mini golf this mm-hmm. is a game that uses a lot of the things that we've made in escape rooms Let's see if you throw it throw it on the wall and see if it sticks
1: Uh, But instead of using the money that we had for that, we used that money to not go under in 2020. So maybe someday.
2: Uh, That sounds like so much fun.
0: One day. But in the meantime, I can tell you that when I can travel again, Lisa and I are planning on visiting Champaign-Urbana to come and visit you and play these games. And in the meantime, we wish you all of the success in the world because I want you to make a pile of money so that you can make this crazy thing. And then I'll come back to Champagne urbana and play it. I so badly want all of this stuff to exist.
1: Thank you. Us too. <laughs> things things are looking up. Are you guys working on more shirts? Yeah, yeah. we, ma- we want to do another one now because it seems like people really like it. And the pandemic is still going to be around for a little while. So it's another good at-home experience. And then I think we'll at least make it an annual thing for kind of the holiday time as gift. Because I think they will continue to sell well both online and in our lobby when people are able to come back in.
0: You keep making them and we'll keep buying them.
3: <laughs> we, we have at least enough sort of surprising, I hope, gimmicks that we have a few more shirts in us that should be real good, I think. Yeah.
2: We'll put links to all of that in the show notes for all of you listeners at home that want to buy one, check out their show notes. What's your website so they can take a look at it?
3: Solve Our Shirts is sort of separately branded from the rest of our digital games, and you can check that out at solveourshirts.com.
1: And then um, you can also see our play-at-home games and our regular in-person games at cuadventures.com. The letter C, the letter U, adventures. If
2: anyone wants to follow you, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, we're at cu underscore adventures. Uh, you can also find me personally on Twitter at alukman. Chris is also on Twitter. At drpuzzles. <laughs> I just wanted to make him say it. (laughs) It's a good Twitter handle.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by roomescapeartist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content. We'll catch you next time.
2: If you're enjoying this podcast, you should join our Patreon. Some of the perks include a patrons-only Discord and exclusive bonus podcast content. Every podcast will have a companion after show, where David and I talk about the interview we just recorded, as well as chat more casually about games we've been playing, industry news and well, whatever we feel like really. You can get access to this bonus content for only $5 a month, and a lot of times the after show is even longer than our interviews. $15 gets you access to the Spoilers Club where we pick a game each month and then we will discuss the game after we've all played it. This month, we'll be playing and discussing Locurio's The Vanishing Act. Make sure you've played the game before listening and we can spoil to our heart's content.
0: We've got higher tiers as well, and we want to give a special shout out. Thank you to Wesley James, Byron Delmonico, Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Scott Olson. Breakout Games and Derek Tam none of this work would have been possible without the support of all of our incredible patrons and the community at large thank you
2: so if you like what we're doing and you want to support our mission of creating a global community of escape room and immersive gaming enthusiasts check out our patreon at patreon.com slash room escape artist